You are listening to the 10-Minute Medic, the podcast for busy paramedic students. This week's podcast is sponsored by Eastern Kentucky University Paramedic Program. They've been offering degrees to working paramedics for over 40 years. Now, you can earn yours 100% online. One of the most common cardiac-related emergencies that the paramedic will be called upon to deal with is that of congestive heart failure. In this podcast, we'll take a look at the pathophysiology of the disease process, the symptoms that your patient may present, and the treatment that you may be called upon to give. In congestive heart failure, the heart is not able to maintain an adequate cardiac output to meet the metabolic needs of the body. From a mechanical perspective, the chambers of the heart are affected by disease so that they're no longer able to pump effectively. The most common causes of congestive heart failure are hypertension, acute myocardial infarction, and cardiomyopathy or an enlarged heart. The most common presentation of this disease is seen in patients older than 65 years of age. It can affect either the left or the right side of the heart or both sides of the heart at the same time. Myocardial infarction results in the death of the cardiac muscle cells and as they heal, scar tissue takes the place of formerly healthy cardiac tissue. The scar tissue is not able to contract as does healthy tissue and the result effect is a decrease in cardiac output. In addition, the lack of ability of the heart tissue to contract in a synchronized manner, this cardiac output is further negatively affected. For patients suffering from high blood pressure, the cardiac tissue must push against a higher afterload pressure because of the increased resistance at level of the vasculature. This will often result in an increase in the size of the myocardium in an effort to maintain cardiac output. Continuance of this situation will result in a condition known as left ventricular hypertrophy, also called LVH. LVH and high blood pressure is characterized by the enlargement of the ventricular muscle as well as an increase of fibrosis found within the interstitium. The amount of blood that's ejected from the left ventricle expressed as a percentage of the blood in that ventricle is called the ejection fraction. The normal ejection fraction, known also as the EJ, is considered normal with any value above 55%. When the left ventricle is weakened beyond its ability to effectively contract, blood will begin to back up into the pulmonary circuit. Because of this, the patient will begin to experience fluid that accumulates in the lungs that will result in pulmonary edema. When the failure process begins, the heart will employ a number of compensatory mechanisms to offset the loss of cardiac output. The first of these is called the Frank Starling mechanism. During this process, the output is increased in direct relation to the amount of preload. As you recall, the Frank Starling mechanism says that the more the cardiac muscle is stretched to a point, cardiac output is increased. Much like the length of rubber band is stretched, the greater amount of force is expended will be released. If the muscles of the heart are stretched too far or too long, they'll eventually begin to fail and become floppy and unable to snap back. The second mechanism involves activation of the neural hormonal system. When the first onset of heart failure begins, the neural hormonal mechanism attempts to maintain homeostasis by an increase in the vascular resistance. The body does this as an attempt to minimize the reduction in cardiac output. At the same time, sodium and water is retained. This leads to an increase in the volume found in the contractive vasculature and results in an increase in the preload returned to the heart. An increase in the preload results in an increase of cardiac output, once again, thanks to Frank Starling mechanism. While this is happening, angiotensin II is released. This simulates the patient to become thirsty as well as an increase in aldosterone production at the adrenal cortex. The aldosterone increases the amount of water retained by the body, thus causing an increase in the preload. 
Antidiuretic hormone, also called vasopressin, is produced because of a decrease in the cardiac output, as well as the increase in the production of angiotensin II. Because of this, additional amounts of water is retained, thus, once again, increasing the preload. Because of the increase of pressure within the capillaries, plasma will begin to move out of the vasculature and into the pulmonary interstitial. This results in the mechanical process of breathing to become more difficult, while at the same time increasing airway resistance. As the hypoxemia begins to set in, the ventilatory drive tries to increase. When a patient attempts to breathe while in a supine position, dyspnea increases. This is because the ventricles are unable to accommodate the increase in fluid volume. The patient will experience an increase in urination during the night. This occurs because while lying supine, blood is directed back to the renal system, resulting in better perfusion and thusly diuresis. This week's episode is sponsored by the Eastern Kentucky University Department of Paramedicine. Did you know that currently licensed paramedics can now earn their associate's or bachelor's degree in EMS leadership completely online? All classes qualify for state and federal financial aid and are delivered in convenient eight-week formats. For more information on how you can get started, drop me an email at bill.young at eku.edu. Consider that the heart is a two-stage pump that's divided by the septum. One pump is on the left and the other is on the right. When the patient begins the process of heart failure, the left ventricle will become stiff and unable to completely relax. This inability will have a direct negative effect on the ability for the coronary vessels to fill with blood. Keep in mind that the most common cause of left heart failure is an acute myocardial infarction. Recall that coronary circulation takes place during diastole. During this time, the patient will have an adequate cardiac output, but is not able to meet the metabolic demands of the heart. Some of the signs and symptoms of left heart failure include a worsening respiratory status when the patient is in a supine position, a racking cough that will often be accompanied by blood-tinged sputum that has a foamy appearance, crackles that are audible in all lung fields. This is especially troubling if, when you ask the patient to cough, they don't dissipate. Listen for these beginning with the base of the lungs up to the level of the shoulder. Cardiac asthma. This is not an actual form of asthma, but a presence of wheezing or a cough that often accompanies left heart failure. It has symptoms that may look like and sound like asthma that include shortness of breath, coughing, and wheezing. Depending upon the severity of the patient's condition, she may present with an altered level of consciousness. This comes about because of a lack of adequate oxygenation as well as perfusion to the brain. The most common cause of right heart failure is left heart failure. Because the pressure in the left atrium is increased as a result of the failure of the left ventricle, a backup circulation is relayed through the pulmonary vasculature. This forces the plasma into the alveoli, resulting in the blood-tinged sputum that I spoke of earlier. This increase in pressure is not alleviated. The right side of the heart will become damaged and unable to move blood into the pulmonary circuit. It's important for you to remember that it is not the same thing as a right-sided MI. That topic will be covered in a later podcast. As a failure of the right heart progresses, it'll be unable to contract effectively, and blood will begin to back up into the inferior vena cava. It'll then continue to pull on the rest of the vasculature of the body. This results in the pedal edema that is seen in classic right heart failure. It's important to remember that if your patient is confined to bed, you may not see any pedal edema. Instead, because of this pooling of blood is gravity-dependent, you should assess the sacral area of the back for any edema that you may see. Right heart failure can be caused by COPD, a disease of the cardiac valves, a right-sided AMI, or uncontrolled hypertension. 
If the latter etiology is the primary factor, left heart failure will usually occur prior to the right side. Some of the symptoms that your patient may exhibit as a result of right heart failure include jugular vein distension, pitting edema in the lower extremities or lower back, and fluid accumulation in the abdominal cavity known as ascites. If left and right ventricular failure happens simultaneously, you may see the symptoms of both types of heart failure. Let's take a look at the treatment protocol for a patient in left or right side heart failure. Nitroglycerin has been a long time a mainstay in the treatment of congestive heart failure. Administration of this drug will result in vasodilation and an increase in the ability of the blood to pull in the vasculature, reducing the amount of preload being returned to the heart. Reducing the preload has an added benefit of a reduction of the workload and oxygen demand on the cardiac tissue. In an ideal world, we give nitroglycerin via IV, but this is generally not the practice of most EMS ground services. There's no consensus about the dosing regimen for sublingual nitroglycerin nationwide, but it is possible to look at guidelines for how we give it during an ACS syndrome and make adjustments as necessary. IV nitro is usually given at 5 to 10 micrograms per minute and can be increased by that same amount every 3 to 5 minutes until the patient is receiving about 200 mics. If your patient is hemodynamically stable, instead of giving it IV, you may be able to administer 0.8 milligrams sublingual every 5 minutes. This would be two sprays instead of the usual one. As usual, be sure to assess the patient's blood pressure prior to any subsequent dose. Also, prior to giving nitroglycerin, ask your patients, both male and female, about the use of erectile dysfunction drug usage in the last 24 hours. ED drugs were originally developed to address pulmonary hypertension, and some doctors are still prescribing it for female patients. At one point, it would be a foregone conclusion that diuretic would be given, most likely furosemide. For many EMS medical directors, the decision has been to remove this drug from the formulary to be used pre-hospitalized. If your patient is in severe respiratory distress or failure, use CPAP as soon as you possibly can. CPAP is a continuous airway pressure applied to the airway during the respiratory cycle via a sealable mask. This will increase the functional residual capacity or the FRC. This FRC is also known as the amount of air that remains on the lungs at the end of a normal exhalation. The FRC increases the amount of surface area of the alveoli. Conversely, if that surface area is decreased, there's less gas exchange that takes place, and the patient will begin to retain CO2 and become more acidotic. In addition, CPAP will help the alveoli to remain expanded. The use of CPAP will help to ensure that your patient does not unnecessarily become intubated and go on to a ventilator. The effective paramedic will work to ensure that a patient in moderate congestive heart failure does not progress to a more severe state. The early and aggressive use of CPAP will help many patients to remain off a ventilator, preventing not only physical suffering, but also financial hardship as well. Make sure that you're assessing the breath sounds early and often to determine if your patient condition is improving or deteriorating. What you do for your patient in this particular situation can have profound effects on treatment once it gets to the hospital.